worthy. I invite you this morning, if you would, to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 8. Mark's Gospel, chapter number 8. What I'd like to do for the next few weeks is to take and unpack Mark chapters 8 through 10, which is the heart of Mark's Gospel, pressing the practical message of the Gospel. There is within every book of the Bible a theological message and then a practical application of that message. The theological message of every gospel, virtually every gospel, although there can be some nuance there, is that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God come to save the world from their sin. That is the theological message of the gospel. The practical message of Mark's gospel is that we are to be faithful followers of the only begotten Son of God come to save the world from their sin. We might say that discipleship is the main practical message of the Gospel of Mark. Now, sometimes in Christian circles, we use terminology that is foreign to those outside the kingdom. So just briefly, let's unpack what it means to be a disciple. Being a disciple, the language of discipleship comes out of the, the biblical culture where if you really wanted to learn a person's trade, you would attach yourselves to them as sort of an apprentice. You would follow them as they went. This was especially true of philosophers and in the Jewish culture, rabbis. If, if you wanted to learn the expertise or have the insight that your teacher had, you would attach yourself to them in such a way that you could be found following after them. The idea of discipleship is the idea of walking behind someone, learning both from the things that they say, but perhaps more importantly from the things that they do. So when we talk about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, what we're saying is that we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus, learning both from what he has said and from what he has done, and in our context after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, learning according to the leadership of the Holy Spirit that abides within us by faith in Jesus Christ. So when we talk about being a disciple, that's all that we mean by that. It's our Christian shorthand for saying we are laboring in the here and now to follow in the footsteps of Jesus until he comes again to cleanse and claim his church forevermore when our following is changed from a walk by faith to a walk by sight. That is the message of Mark's gospel, and that will be the focus of our study for the next few weeks. Now, I've not arbitrarily chosen this section to press the message. This, this is the section that is the heart of Mark's gospel. I'm going to sort of get over my outline a little bit here and just say to you that chapters 1 through 8 in the gospel of Mark is a building of the case that indeed Jesus is the Son of God. There are some astounding things that happen in Mark chapters 1 through 8. The first miracle is Jesus' healing of Peter's mother-in-law. There are greater miracles. It seems that they are ratcheting up incrementally as you read through those sections until in Mark chapter 4, Jesus stands in a boat on the Sea of Galilee, wind and wave, having tossed the sea. And he says, peace and be still, and the waters become as glass. 
In Mark chapter 5, he encounters a man who is not only demon-possessed, but he is possessed by an entire legion of demons. And within the span of just a few short verses, he is subdued, sitting at the feet of Jesus, worshiping the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one, the only one, sin of God, to do for us what we simply could not do for ourselves. Mark chapters 11 through 16, there is the passion narrative. The historical account of how Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the celebration and the praise of what seemed like all the people. Then the span of a few short days was nailed to a cross on our behalf, not for sins that he had done, but for our crimes. How on the third day Jesus rose from the grave. How he lives and rules and reigns forevermore. How all authority has been given unto him both in heaven and on earth. And how he has involved us in the carrying forth of the message of his sonship. He is good, isn't he? Here it is in the center of Mark's gospel, chapters 8 through 10. That that we find where the rubber meets the road, what the gospel means, what this message means for our lives. There's so much more I want to say there, but I want us to get to the text. If you would, uh, focus your attention there on verses 27 and following. And as you found your way there, let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Here the Bible says, Jesus went out with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets, but you, he asked them again, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Messiah. And he strictly warned them to tell no one about him. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and rise after three days. He was openly talking about this. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Summoning the crowd along with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world, yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. He said to them, I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in great power. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. This section sets the agenda for chapters 8 through 10. In other words, there is a theme introduced here that is carried through the next few chapters. 
The theme is outlined most clearly in verses 34 and following, where Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my follower, he must take up his cross and come after me. Now, in the Western church, we have uh, fashioned all kinds of crosses to justify our uh, existence or to give some rationale to how we understand ourselves as following Jesus after having taken up our cross. Let me, let me tell you what taking up your cross is not. Taking up your cross is not bearing with a difficult spouse. Taking up your cross is not hosting the in-laws for Thanksgiving dinner. Taking up the cross is not bearing with a bad diagnosis. Taking up the cross is not dealing with financial struggles, except that those struggles are the product of your Christian faith. Taking up the cross means to stare death in the face, indeed to embrace it with a confidence that, he on, the, that on the other side awaits something better, a rest for our soul. That's what it looks like to take up the cross. But, but before we can even get there, we have to address this exchange between Jesus and his disciples that happens beginning in verse 27. The Bible says that they entered into the villages or the region of Caesarea Philippi. Now, this introduction is always there, and I think here's the point. When you, when you get to Caesarea Philippi, a city that's named after Caesar and Philip, it's clear what the people think about Caesar and Philip. There are monuments to these two individuals all over the city. There are buildings that are built, constructed in honor of either Caesar or Philip. Everything bears their name. It is as though Jesus is standing against this backdrop saying, it's clear what the people here think about Caesar. It's clear what they think about Philip. But who do they say that I, the Son of Man, am? series of answers are offered on behalf of the people. They said John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others one of the prophets. Now, there's all kinds of rumors about who you might be. But Jesus presses further and gets a little more personal with his line of questioning. He says, but you, who do you say that I, the Son of Man, am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, the, the, the fuller account of what, Mark, or what Matthew says here, or what Peter says here rather, he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. In other words, you didn't figure this out on your own. You didn't take counsel with a group in the corner and determine among yourselves who I am. God has revealed from heaven who I am. He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Oh, Peter gets it right. If you know the Bible, you know that this is really a rare instance in Peter's life when he gets it right. You know, when it comes to biblical heroes, the go-to answer is Jesus is my biblical hero. But the hon honestly, I have a real hard time sometimes identifying with Jesus in his perfection. But boy, can I identify with Peter. <laughs> Peter misses the mark more times than not. And it appears here, at least for a moment, that Peter gets it right. You are the Christ. That's who he is. 
And, and I would just pause here to say to you, that's where discipleship begins. Discipleship begins with the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. This morning, if you are here and you desire to be a follower of Jesus Christ, here's what the Bible says, that your following Jesus can only begin after you have confessed that he is Lord, that he's God's only son, that he came to earth and dwelt among us without sin, that he died as our substitute on the cross, that he was raised again the third day, that he's found a position of power at the right hand of the Father, that he rules and he reigns. Jesus is Lord. That is the starting point of every relationship with Jesus. Christ is Lord. You're not born as a Christian. You don't become a Christian by osmosis, living in the Bible belt. It's not something that sneaks up on you. There must be a decisive moment of commitment in your life when you say publicly and boldly that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's where it all starts. And it can't start until that confession has been made. But there's more. In verses 31 and following, the Bible says that he began to teach them the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise after three days. And one of the interesting features of this section of Mark's gospel that we're looking at is that three times in this section, Jesus predicts his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Do you, do you get the impression that 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 message is central to who he is and the confession that we make concerning his character. Now, Peter, who seemed so right moments ago, now pulls Jesus aside for a sidebar, and he says, oh, no, Jesus, you, you, you can't be saying these things. This is not the way it, it is. Surely this is not the way it must be. And see, the deal here for Peter is, and the deal for many people in Jesus' day, the reason that they seem to struggle so with embracing him as, as a crucified Savior was the want for an immediate relief from the oppressive hand of, of their Roman occupiers. You had an oppressive governmental structure. Things weren't the way they wanted them to be. They did not enjoy the affluence, the, the prosperity that they thought they deserved. And what they wanted from Jesus was immediate, physical, financial relief. That's what we want from you, Jesus. You can see this in John 6 when 5,000 people joined him on the plains to eat the bread and the loaves. And within a few short verses, they have dispersed. There is real interest in getting from Jesus what he can provide for us financially, materially, or even physically in the healings and the restorations that Jesus provides. But Jesus makes it clear three times in this section that his primary objective in coming to the earth is not to heal us of our physical diseases or restore us to a status of affluence or prosperity, but to remedy for us our spiritual bankruptcy, to die in our stead, to be raised again the third day, that we might have life and life everlasting. Peter says, oh no, Jesus. Surely this is not the way it must be. And Jesus said to him, get behind me, Satan. 
flesh and blood revealed moments ago. And now he calls him Satan. This is a real turn, isn't it? Here's, here's, here's the deal. We don't get to define the terms of our confession. They have been defined for us. In other words, you don't get to have the Jesus of your imagination or the Jesus of your liking. What you get if you are to have salvation is the Jesus of the Bible. Here, discipleship is beginning with confessing that Jesus Christ is the Lord. But it must be a full-throated confession that understands who he is. It is entirely possible to say the right thing without understanding what has been said. Peter confessed Jesus as Lord, but there seems to be a wrestling with the implications of that statement. When one says that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, it gets down into who we are. It radically changes the course of our life. It turns us from death to life, from blind to sight. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. And you will spend the rest of your days following Jesus, wrestling with the consequences of that statement in your life. Jesus says, Peter, here you've missed the mark. In verses 34 and following, Jesus gathers the crowd, and here's what he says to them. If anyone wants to be my follower, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it looks like. It begins with a confession. It begins with a confession, and it continues. This is what Jesus describes here. It continues as we live out our confession. You start following Jesus by confessing your faith in Jesus. You follow Jesus over the course of your life by living out what that means for you. Are you all tracking with me this morning? And there's all kinds of situations and scenarios. Every day of your relationship with Jesus, every day of your earthly life, you're going to be learning more about what it means to say that Jesus is the Lord of my life. Do you remember the early days of following Christ? How exciting it was. You're learning new things every day. When, when, I, when I was saved, and, and I, I say this kind of half in jest, but this is the truth. When I, when I was saved, I couldn't find the book of Genesis with both hands and a flashlight. I knew nothing about what the Bible said. All I knew about the Bible was that God is good, I was bad, I was bound for hell, but I wanted heaven, and only Jesus could change my destiny. That was my theology on day number one. That's all I knew. And I can remember just taking the Bible and beginning to read and making new discoveries every day about the mind of God concerning my life. I lived with my granny. My, my granny, could, she could cook anything I wanted to eat in five minutes or less. She, it was incredible. And I, I, can, I can remember when I got to Leviticus chapter 11, which is where the food laws are, completely quit pork chops until I got to the book of Acts. No more pork, <laughs> granny. No more of that. And it was sincere. It was earnest on my part. I just wanted to know what, what God desired of me, and I, and I earnestly, sincerely wanted to do what God wanted me to do. Now, the confession in the beginning was sincere and real, and it was saving and effective in my life. 
But every moment since that moment has been a process of learning more about what that means for my life. I hope you're wrestling and struggling through that process in your own life. Bearing with the heavy consequences of what it means to say that what awaits us over there is far better than anything that might be enjoyed in the here and now. That being a follower of Jesus is not about social acceptance or cultural adaptation. It's not about living up to the expectation of our parents or our grandparents. It's about embracing the emblem of death, the cross itself, and marching with our confession on our lips toward heaven. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and come this way. Come the way of death. Come the way of persecution. Come the way of hardship. Sometimes come the way of agony. In verse 35, he says, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. Are, are, in, in, in the context of our discussion here, what he's saying is this. If, if you are brought before kings and principalities and they charge you that you must recant, that you must deny your faith, if you do in that moment deny your faith in Jesus, if, if you turn back on your confession, Jesus says, what I want you to understand, that it's better to lose your life in the here and now and have it on the other side. That's, that's the message of this verse. If you value your health in the here and now over your confession that Jesus is Lord, you will ultimately lose your eternal life. In verse 36, Jesus goes on, for what does it benefit a man to gain the whole world yet lose his life? What can a man give in exchange for his life? What's the message there? If you value material gain over your confession that Jesus is Lord, you will lose both material gain and your life. Now, here's, here's the rub here. In, 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 our, in our culture, in our mind, the idea of material gain and being a follower of Jesus, it almost goes together. We don't like to think that we have been touched by the prosperity gospel, but brothers and sisters, we have in some very real ways. I, I was called by a concerned church member, not from here, but, but from another church in a far different area, um, and, and they were concerned over some issues in their church, and they, they wanted some counsel. And one, of their, one of their main concerns was that their church had recently sent a mission team to Hawaii. And they just had real issues with sending a mission team to Hawaii because in their mind, they were just going on a vacation. Now, now that in itself is telling that there would be concern about, because see, in their mind, they've connected up Hawaii, islands, beauty, resort, vacation, beach, water, lots of money, and the gospel. Y'all tracking with me? So they put all that together. And even, even the way we send teams sometimes. I, I just came back. I was in the Dominican Republic this week. No, no one is, is reluctant about sending teams into that kind of environment where poverty abounds. Because we have paired up in our minds poverty and not following Jesus. Can I just tell you? 
Can I just tell you, y'all, y'all come in real close for this. When you stand before the judgment bar of God, he will not require of you your tax returns. You can have all the money in the world and be as lost as a goose in a snowstorm. It's always in preacher circles, people talk about, uh, you know, being, being in, in some resort area to pastor, to lead. Every time we go to the beach for vacation, my wife's always looking for the, the, lo- the closest church who's without a pastor. We just kind of have those conversations in joke, as a joke. And, and, I, and I'm, I'm just telling you, you, it would be like going to Nineveh for me. Because it's so much harder to reach the up and out than it is the down and out. That's why Jesus said that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It is not about your stuff or what you've got. In fact, often your stuff is is fighting against your uh, allegiance to Jesus Christ. So when your material goods are in jeopardy, if you value them over your confession that Jesus is Lord, you'll lose it all. That's the message of verse 36. Look at verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here's the message. When your popularity is in jeopardy, in that awkward moment when there are smirks on the faces of your accusers, If you choose to shrink back from your confession that Jesus is Lord, if you think that embarrassment is bad, you wait for the embarrassment you experience when judgment is declared against you on the great day of God's judgment. If you deny me in the here and now, I will deny you before my Father and the holy angels. The message here is that discipleship throughout the course of our life When the hardships come, when the persecution comes, it is continued by holding fast to our confession. Even if our health and well-being are compromised, even if our prosperity is in jeopardy, even if our popularity is on the line, we must persist in confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. We must, we must, we must. There's a further message here in these verses. Jesus makes steady reference in verses 36 and following to the idea of coming before the judgment of God. Coming before the judgment of God. You're going to be brought before the judgment of God. And you need to evaluate the decisions that you make in the here and now against what you would be happy with in the there and then. And the message is this. That discipleship is perfected. In other words, it comes to its conclusion by our holding fast to our confession. The unsettling truth of what Jesus has described here is that there's almost a built-in expectation that we will die because of our confession. Thankfully, that is not universally true for Christian people. And thankfully, God has afforded us incredible liberty, freedom, and safety in our cultural context in, in, in this land, in America, we enjoy freedom and, and liberty and safety and security from, from this kind of persecution. But it's a reality that needs to be wrestled with. 
There are issues here that need to be settled within ourselves that we are prepared, even in the face of death, to make our confession that Christ is Lord. So the misconception is that confessing Jesus as Lord is something that we do at the beginning of our walk with Christ. But the reality is that we'll wake up today and tomorrow and the next day and the next day living boldly our confession that Christ is Lord over our life. And that's more than just a polite way of making reference to Jesus. The idea of Jesus as Lord is incredible here. There are a number of ways that this works itself out. Do you remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? When he says, have this mind in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Nevertheless, he would abandon or lay aside the glories of heaven that he might walk among us clothed in the likeness of sinful flesh that he would die and be raised again in order that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that Jesus has been given a name unmatched by any other name. That name is Lord. And it's born out of the description of God in the Old Testament. God as Lord. God as Lord. In in other words, Jesus has been given a name unlike anyone else's name, because he is God. He's God over our life. That means he calls the shots, in case you're not tracking with me. That means he's in charge of our life. We don't domesticate Jesus or set him aside in a way that doesn't allow for his interference in our life. He is God. That that means that we're no longer left on our own to make decisions about what we do or what we don't do. Jesus has predetermined our decisions. That, that, that means that the mind, we're, we're laboring to, to allow that the mind of God be our mind. We want that what we do as a church be lined up with what God's will is in heaven. We live every day boldly confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. Persisting in this is central to who we are. There, there's a, a handful of you all who have gone back and listened through sermons that I've preached through the years and, and perhaps several more that have gone back and listened through the Revelation series. That everyone's always drawn to that. When we read that book, we, you read of all the military terminology and the wars and battles and conquests that are happening there. Can, can I, this, is, this is critical to our discussion here. Those are all figurative. The weapons of our warfare are not swords and F-16s and great big bombs. It is our confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's how we conquer. That's how war is waged against the powers of darkness in this world. By confessing that Jesus is the Christ, we beat back the darkness when we hold fast to our confession. The message of Revelation is persevere unto the end, confessing that Christ is Lord, Christ is Lord, Christ is Lord. Listen, there are so many competing interests who desire to hear you say in one way or another that someone other than Jesus is Lord of your life. There, There are wicked taskmasters who wish to Lord over your life. They want for your allegiance. But Christ and Christ alone is Lord. 
The kingdom advances, the gospel prevails, and the victory is ours as we hold fast to our faith in Jesus Christ. The idea of confession is all over the New Testament. I don't think we talk about this enough. What we say is critically important. When you come to the end of Mark's gospel, Peter denies Jesus. And, and, the, and the tragedy there is that he's backed away from his confession. It's not just that he's betrayed a friend. Confession is central to who we are. He has betrayed his confession. This is, this is critical. And, and, and we've, we've sort of mastered as the end around the ability to say all the right things. You don't have to spend much time in the church culture to learn quickly what you, what you should say. In, in my former church, we had a children's church time down, down at the front, and occasionally I would be called on to do that. And, and I knew I could ask any question. It didn't matter if it was how's the weather outside. You, you'd have 19 children raise their hand and say, Jesus. You just know. I mean, that's just how you respond, and you're safe, you know. But there are adult versions of that as well. I was trained to, to ask people in sharing the gospel, if you died today, where would you spend eternity? They all say the same thing. It doesn't take long to learn that the answer is always heaven. The answer is always Jesus. The, all, the answer is always God or some generic way of making reference to the man upstairs. But I'm just warning you this morning that you can say all the right things with your mouth. But if that doesn't line up with what you genuinely believe in your heart, it will be of no use to you whatsoever. It just won't matter. And in every passage, I think every passage that deals with the idea or the business of our salvation and how that occurs in our life, it stresses this. Think of Romans 10, 9 through 11. It's a passage we always go to in sharing the gospel. Peter says, if you believe in your heart unto righteousness and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. What does that mean? Believe in your heart unto righteousness and confess with your mouth? What he's, what he's saying is that what you believe in your heart and what you say with your mouth has to line up if it's to be of any saving benefit for you whatsoever. And here's how you know. Jesus said, you'll know a man by, by, by the fruit in his life. You know a tree by its fruit. And brothers and sisters, if you would look out across the limbs of your life and you don't see fruit that's fitting of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, in all likelihood it's because you don't have faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Have you confessed that Jesus is Lord over your life? That, have you ever, has that ever happened in, in your life? Has there ever been a, a moment I'm not telling you you got to know day, moment, hour, but I am telling you it's a monumental event in our life. It, it may not be marked on our calendars, but it's marked in our memory as a moment of radical transformation in our life. For me, it was June 22nd of 2001 at 2.35 in the afternoon. I can remember distinctly what was playing on the radio. Have, have you experienced that moment when God uh, tore back the veil of your heart sowed the gospel seed and you believed on Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin? Are you following Jesus? Have you confessed him as Lord in the beginning, one, but, but two, are you persevering in that confession? Are you running your race well? So many times we evaluate a person's sincerity, we evaluate a person's faith on the basis of how they begin the race, 
He responded in a vacation Bible school or during an invitation. And she was so emotional about the decision that she made. She seemed so convincing, so compelling in the description that he or she gave of their conversion experience. And those, those may be legitimate experiences, senses that are felt at the moment of our conversion. But the harsh reality, brothers and sisters, is that the life of the believer, according to the standard of the New Testament, is evaluated not on the basis of how we begin the race, but on the way that we finish it. Are you persevering in your confession that Jesus is Lord? We're, we're going to have an invitation in, in, in just a moment. And, and I want to encourage you to examine yourselves to see that you are in the faith. If you have never confessed that Jesus is Lord, I can assure you, you are not. There's a very real marked difference between you and others around you who've given their life to following Jesus. And I can assure you, assure you further that if you've made that confession at some point in, in your past and it's, it's never bore fruit in your life, it, it's, it's, not, it's not because there's something wrong with the gospel. There's something undone with the nature of your confession. I, I, don't, I don't know how the whole business of God growing us and maturing us and making us over works. But I know this. You simply cannot be touched by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and be unchanged by that experience. Can't happen. Can't happen. It simply cannot happen. I, I know I'm out of time, but I, I, really, I really worry sometimes about the way the gospel is preached. And I, I feel like I've got a little, a little freedom to make some observations here, being brand new and not knowing all the personalities. One, I can say things about my old church I couldn't say there. Two, y'all know me well enough to get mad at me. So I kind of got free reign here. We were in a similar situation in my former pastorate to what you are here. We are here now at Longview Point, where people were moving into our community. Steady flow of people moving in. And that's, and that's a good thing. It's a, an encouraging thing for a church because there's prospective additions to the church. And, and there's all, the field is ever growing with opportunity to share the good news of the gospel. It's a really cool thing. And what I began to experience was, and, and this, this bothers me, I don't know what the answer to this is, and I, and I was always afraid to say it there just because I didn't want to hurt or sound as though I was disparaging any other church in our community, and I don't know them, so I'm, I'm, I'm going to take the liberty to say this. But I, I just noticed that people would come and they would join our church, usually because they'd had a, a conversion experience or some type of experience in a former church, and they would be moving their letter. You know how that transition happens, and they'd come into our church, and then after about six months, they, they come to me and they say, I, I've, I've realized I was never saved. I was never born again. I, I had never made a valid confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, that's encouraging. I'm exciting about, excited about all that. We embrace that. It was a marvelous, marvelous thing. But here's what it made me wonder. What in the world are we saying out there about the gospel if there are scores of people who believe that they are born again only to find later that they had no familiarity with the true gospel of the Bible whatsoever. Brothers and sisters, the gospel of Jesus Christ is not about being a good moral patriot. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not about making bad people good. The gospel of Jesus Christ is about making dead 
people live. And yes, it has moral consequences in our life. It changes us. It affects us deeply. But it's so much more than that. It's about Christ being the height of our life, being the treasure of our heart. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Your church membership cannot save you. Your baptism cannot save you. Your meager works cannot save you. Salvation can only be found in Jesus Christ. Oh, look to Jesus.